Welcome to the Aquadome, you never-ending Brendans. It's the Blind Boy Podcast. The weather is freezing again. It's proper, appropriate January weather. It was minus three degrees this morning. It was absolutely beautiful. I was up at half seven. I cycled past a horse in an industrial estate with steam rising off his back. It was an Edward Hopper morning. Absolute clarity. Freezing cold. Slanty morning sun. Turning red bricks orange. Translucent sky. The colour of Holly Mary's jacket with a streak of yellow in it. One of those mornings where you're genuinely glad that you got up really early and experienced it. And minus three degrees it was fucking freezing. And I sat down beside the Terry Wogan statue which is situated by the river in Limerick. And I meditated. I meditated while looking at a bronze Terry Wogan. And I noticed that um, when the Terry Wogan statue in Limerick is really, really cold, like minus cold, it stops looking like it's bronze and it starts to look chalky. It got so cold and chalky it made me wonder, will it freeze and thaw like the desert? Will Terry Wogan's bronze features eventually erode away? And then he just looks like one of those wanking plaster statues that they found of people who burnt alive in Pompeii. You're getting two podcasts this week. I've got a bonus episode coming this Friday, I reckon. It's going to be a monologue essay. And for this podcast, I had a wonderful chat. A chat about sex education with an award-winning journalist who specialises in health journalism. And she's been... She's shortlisted as Health Journalist of the Year at the British Press Awards. Her name is Sophia Smith-Gaylor, incredibly interesting journalist who pioneered the use of TikTok for research and also using TikTok as a platform to deliver journalism, to produce journalistic content. She's also the senior news reporter for Vice World News. She speaks internationally about her investigations across sexual and reproductive health rights. A very interesting and accomplished person. Sophia has written a book called Losing It, Sex Education for the 21st Century. And the paperback is coming out on the 2nd of February. So I wanted to chat to her on this podcast, specifically about sex education, because most of us got shit sex education. And even now as adults... When anything to do with sex is spoken about in the media, it tends to be accompanied by a giggle or a a veil of moral judgment around it. But Sophia speaks about sex from a health perspective. So regarding this podcast, I wouldn't say it's inappropriate. There's nothing inappropriate in this podcast. But it's a conversation about sex education, so maybe take that into consideration. If children are listening... And you might listen to it and then afterwards decide, maybe my children should listen, but I'll leave that one up to you. Also, maybe you might want to have a think about whether you want to blast this episode out in the office. Maybe you do. It's up to you. I don't think there's anything in here that requires a content warning. Nothing triggering or traumatic is spoken about. It's just a conversation about sex education from a health journalist who specialises in this area. 
and it's very fascinating. So before I begin my chat with Sophia Smith-Gaylor, I think I'll do a little ocarina pause so I don't have to interrupt the chat. I'm in my home studio, so I do have my ocarina with me this week. So I'm going to play the ocarina and you're going to hear an advert for something that is algorithmically generated. This ocarina is particularly offensive to dogs. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy. For the past 20 years, when I experience anxiety or depression, or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindby today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H-E-L-P com slash blind boy that was the ocarina pause you know the crack support for this podcast comes from you the listener via the patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast if this podcast brings you distraction entertainment joy solace laughter whatever Please consider becoming a patron because this podcast is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. This is how I pay my bills. I adore making this podcast. I absolutely love it. But it's only possible because it's listener-funded. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. And if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Just some upcoming gigs. I'm going to announce the ones that aren't sold out. So, 
am I? Wednesday the 15th of February I'm in the Cork Opera House Saturday the 4th of March I'm in the Waterfront Belfast Wednesday the 22nd of March I'm in Vicker Street 24th of March I'm in Vicker Street, Dublin Then on the 1st of April I'm in the TLT Theatre, Drogheda And then the 26th and the 28th of April I'm in Toronto and Vancouver over in Canada and those are my live podcast shows please come along to them if they sound like fun they are fun loads of fun so here is the chat that I had with Sophia Smith Gaylor and her book Losing It Sex Education for the 21st Century is available in shops as hardback at the moment but paperback on the 2nd of February so a lot of your stuff is around uh, sexual health and sex education. Why is it th- why is it that area in particular that you're interested in? Yes, it's it's a strange journey that my journalism has been on because my first reporter job that I had was uh, on faith and ethics. So it was all about religion and the mm-hmm. complexities of contemporary faith as well as like, just How did eth- you end up in that? Yeah. So <laughs> that. How the fuck did you end up there? <laughs> mm, yeah, kind of random, but Random and not random because uh, it was just an interesting job that had opened up for a self-shooting video journalist, which is what I was. But also um, I was raised a Catholic. I'm half Italian. So Mm -hmm. for me, being Italian and being Catholic, like very similar things. And I can't. Well, I'm Irish. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like. We have a little bit more shame. I I think. (laughs) Catholic or the Italians do Catholicism as well. We we have a, a little bit more shame attached to it. Yeah, there's some expression that's something like, um, yeah, we both confess, but like almost like Italian Catholics, like we do stuff and then just confess about it later and we feel fine. Um, whereas Irish Catholics are a lot better behaved and yeah, feel bad about <laughs> no. what they've done. <laughs> I've heard yeah. something like that before, but yeah, so I'd grown up with that knowledge. I'm not religious. Um, but you did you re- you received Catholic education, I'm assuming. Yeah, and I'm okay. I I am confirmed. I went through my confirmation when I was a teenager. I sang Isn't at that church. Weird now over in Britain. Like for me, like I had all that like I didn't have a choice. Like he, here's the fucked up thing. Like everybody you speak to in Ireland had a Catholic education and most of us were baptized and confirmed. We didn't have a choice. If I didn't do this, I didn't get a school. Yes, so Whereas it's more of a choice for you guys over in, in Britain, isn't yes, it? Yes, I think if you were to go to a Catholic school here, you do have to do one of those things, I believe. Uh, and in Ireland, it was like, uh, it's Catholic school, or, you, or otherwise you have to be a rich Protestant or fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. No, they changed it recently. I did fuck. have a choice. Um, I wanted to be confirmed because I everyone else in my family had been. It was kind of that basic. I also... Yeah. And you get to invent and your own get name. a new name, exactly. And I was like, yes, yeah. who wouldn't want that? And also I went to an all-girls school and it meant, meant I could meet boys. So I, that was also a really fun element of my confirmation class that I'd go to every Tuesday night, which okay. probably wasn't the intention of the priest that ran it. But anyway, um, I did that. I sang in church every weekend. Um, I was uh, My first job was actually as like a wedding singer at the Italian church in London, singing at weddings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent... My, all my teenage years doing weddings and funerals um, and, and a million Catholic masses. Uh, I go to uni and I study Spanish and Arabic and I live in uh, Beirut during my year abroad. 
And what ended up happening is that those different life experiences that I've had mean I may know more about lots of different world religions in a way um, that other journalists don't. And also you have a, you're looking at things from the lens of religion also in, in the way that other people may not be if they were raised outside yes, of a religious it, system. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Um, I'm immensely critical uh, of a lot of the... Critical because a lot of the stories that I do are people talking about experiences that they have had that are not right or not fair or aren't just mm -hmm. a lot of my uh, journalism, journalism has been like that. Um, but And a lot of sexual morality and sexual mores and standards, a lot of them have religious roots. Exactly. So for me, I remember someone in an interview once said to me, how did you go from religion to sex? And I said, well, it's really obvious for me. Like It's the most unsurprising yeah. thing in the world to to um to find the same kinds of things and each of these lots of us have very moralistic views about not only our own sexual attitudes and lives but that of others we make we make value judgments and opinions about other people based on our own value systems and our value systems are informed by things like whatever our religious background is whatever our cultural background is um but I've gently been lulled further and further into, um, I'm, I'm a generalist reporter at Bicewad News, so I'll report on anything that needs doing in the office yeah. that day. But I um, definitely have a big health focus. And um, you will often find when you try in a newsroom, uh, and I'm speaking really generally here, I know this is an issue that lots of people have faced, but I've faced it in, in previous roles. When you pitch stories around sex, they won't be seen as a health story or they won't be seen as yeah. like a very powerful political current affairs story. And it can be really hard trying to convince people. So I can remember at the beginning of the pandemic. They can be seen as a bit gossipy. Yeah. Like it's very hard. Like when sex is brought up in the media in, in whatever form that it is, adults tend to lose our adulthood and we can become a little bit silly. It can become a little bit winky or gossipy. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah, and if, if you're trying to report on it as a health issue, it's one of those more rare spaces these days when you report on health it's a bit like where there's drugs. taboo. Drugs, I'd say, is similar. You know, I love the fact that at Vice, um, we have led, we have long led coverage on things like drugs and sex. From a health-led yeah. perspective, because drugs too, when you have a conversation about drugs in the media, it becomes a conversation about morality as opposed to a conversation about health, which is what it should be. Yeah. So sex is similar. And harm reducing. Uh, so much yeah. of my journalism has been to uncover something or share something that's generally underreported, which is, which is a harm that is going on that needn't be there. Um, mm -hmm. And there, there are lots of evidence-based solutions to it not being there. We just have to make them happen. And... Yeah, I really feel, especially from from the book that I did and the fact that I spent so much time looking into, okay, we loads of us say our sex education was bad. Loads of us say there are all these harms mm -hmm. in society connected to our sex lives. Who's doing anything about it? What can be done? And there's loads, and it's not being done. Um, so this year, that's been very much a focus for me. Um, I would also say abortion rights was a a focus for mm -hmm. me anyway, but given uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, that has obviously yeah. made it even more even more pertinent because even though 
worldwide for decades, there is a trend of liberalizing abortion laws. It's not that they, the US is going the opposite way, but everyone, pretty much everyone else is, is going in a fo- forward in a really good way. Um, but what's happened in the US has galvanized the minority of voices trying to curtail abortion rights. So um, it's this, this kind of reporting is really urgent. Um, there aren't necessarily lots of people specialized to do it, but we need more and more opportunities to train up and get specialized and get editors who want to commission us. I do think I'm, I, I'm the only journalist in the UK who is both a journalist and I also have an accreditation to deliver relationships and sex education too. And I did that in my own time. That's what I want to know. How did you, you what, what, what was that qualification? Yeah, so um, there is no standardized qualification for delivering relationships and sex education in England. Um, and that's, so in one respect, that's a good thing and a bad thing. So if, in one respect, um, if you lower the, the sort of barrier of entry, it means that anyone from any kind of background, socioeconomic, cultural background can, can access it readily. It's quite good that you don't have to do, you know, that the barrier of entry is not really high. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it does mean that you can't create this very, you can't rely on there being a rigorous system that your teacher has gone through in order to know 100% they are rigorously trained and very highly trained. Um, and that for me is an issue. And I just knew that in, in, I was aware that I would possibly end up talking about my book in schools and I wanted to do it in an authoritative way, in a way where I knew um, what the rules are and the way that I knew the best ways to um, create like a lesson plan, for example. I, you don't get taught that at journalism school. So um, it gave me an opportunity to to learn things like that as well. And like, so like, so I'm I'm Irish, right? So that means as an Irish person, we always think that like British people got a way better sex education than us. Now I got my sex education in school in the early two thousands. It was delivered to me by a priest. Mm. It lasted one day. He told us that. Like if we get a wet dream, it meant meant that we slept with the devil. Um, there was very he it, then he couldn't talk about penetrative sex, but told us not to put our tongue in girls' mouths. Like I didn't receive sex education. I had a very strange day with a priest. Do you know what I mean? That that that's what, and my situation is not unique. And that doesn't set I mean, you I, up I, to safeguard your own health and well being. As you as you grow up, you grow older, you enter into sexual maturity, and you know you you begin you begin live and end your adult life, uh, which has whatever relationship with sex that you want for it. It also does not ensure that you safeguard the health of, or well being of any partner you may ever have. Yeah, and uh, that's not really taken seriously, nearly as seriously as it should be. Yet you will find extensive media mileage of stories um, really with people hand-wringing about uh, cultures of rape and assault in different industries in schools and universities. And you think, mm-hmm. well, yes, are you surprised? You've under-prioritized sex education for decades. This is, these are the consequences of that. And like, so you went to a Catholic girls' school. 
were you happy with the sex education you it received? wasn't catholic it was like church how, of england you... it was church of england um all the catholic stuff i did in my spare time um but my my, my church my my church of england as girls school that you would think oh yeah my, maybe slightly more chill um i remember there was a lot of focus on condoms so uh we very much have a style of sex ed here that a lot of people, it should be familiar to a lot of people, but it's very risk mitigation. So it was very, don't get pregnant. Don't. We didn't get any condoms because it was a uh, priest. Yeah. So he, he wasn't allowed. He, he had to pretend it didn't yeah, exist. So they did exist for us, um, but nothing about what healthy relationships or any of that looked like. Um, I did have, and this is the anecdote that I lead, I think one of the chapters of my book with, but, I can remember a woman coming in who was a Catholic woman, an external speaker, and she said to us every time, she's saying this to a group of women, you know, young women, some of us would have already had sex and some of us wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. uh, many of us uh, may, uh, were heterosexual. Many of us were, you know, another, another orientation within the LGBTQ plus spectrum. She says to yeah. us, Every time you have sex with someone, you will lose your special glue. And when you've lost all of your special glue, no husband what? will love you. What special glue? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did they tell you? Well, they couldn't because it doesn't exist. What is it supposed to be? Whatever it's supposed to be. When you interview people who have been victim of this really, really rubbish abstinence-only education, which studies... Numerous studies, including ones funded by the US Congress, have you know proven to be completely useless. You know the, the kind of sex education we'd be have we should be having is comprehensive sexuality education, not abstinence only education. But um, mm -hmm. something that a lot of the people who've had that kind of bad education, um, they will have been told weird metaphors that involve stickiness. Um, so, so I was given the special glue thing. Purity culture kind of victims in both the UK and the US and probably elsewhere too. Sometimes in class, two pieces of paper would be stuck together with glue. Does it mean lubrication? No, 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 no. No. Glue? Like, what is it? What is the glue sticking Someone together? Someone should have told me about lube at school. I don't think they did. Um, that's not what they were talking about here. They, they're talking about how... Um, the idea that if you have sex with someone, you are permanently changed by it. And that that change is a is a negative thing because it, it's ultimately what what has changed is your value as a person and it is the perception oh that your value God. has diminished because you have chosen to have numerous sexual partners as opposed to one man okay so it's your soul yes yeah, so i see a lot of weird chat about like soul ties that are coming from um okay. external speakers in schools which should not be happening all these things that are very metaphorical, they have no evidence base. You know, there's no such thing as a soul tie. There is no such thing as special glue. Um, but they'll say these phrases. Your value as a human yeah. being, your integrity, the, all these words, your value, your integrity. Like when I was seven, I'd been misbehaving in class. And the way that the teacher, this again was a Catholic education, the way that I was punished, this would have been before I made my first communion. Okay, so I, I had never confessed a sin yet. Now I was fucking seven. What sins does a seven-year-old yeah. have? But I'd been misbehaving. So what the teacher did is she got a, a jam jar and she filled it full of water. 
and she put it at the top of the class and she said, this is your soul. It's clean. And then she got dirt from a pot and she put it into the water and made it dirty and said, this is your soul now that you've sinned. Mm. And the dirty water was used as a metaphor. And then she said, the only way you can get this clean again is by going into that box with this priest and telling him your secrets and then God will clean your soul. So that's 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 what the special glue reminds me of. I've never heard special glue. That sounds insane. I've also heard stories of um, a lollipop being handed out in the classroom and then the lollipop kind of gets dropped on the floor by numerous people and you pick it back up again. And obviously now this is a lollipop with loads of sort of dust and random bits of crap on it and uh, sort of being... Tainted. Yes, being like tainted. Dirty, tainted. Um, it's what we're talking about is is slut shaming. They're slut shaming, but they're doing it in all these strange little metaphors. Yes, and this is overwhelmingly something that young women are taught and educated about than young men, uh, because the messaging is not equal. Because none of this kind of education is remotely gender equal. Like our thing was more restraint. It wasn't if you have sex, your value as a like. <laughs> No one ever told me that my value decreases with the amount of sex that I would have, but we would have been told to restrain. Oh, it's so difficult, the urges you get. But it to be honest, the restraint wasn't even don't have sex with someone. It was don't have, don't masturbate. Definitely don't do that because that seed inside you is real precious and you got to keep that inside and you can't just go throwing that around your bedroom. That's, God, that's children inside there. And again, there. that's not that's not the science. That's not the evidence base on you know a healthy way of talking to young people about masturbation. So yeah, but, like I heard this shit in the early two thousands. You would have heard it in the, in the late two thousands yeah. or late uh, to mid twenty tens. So we're not talking about ancient history here. We're not talking about something that happened in the nineteen sixties. Is this shit still happening? Yeah. What is really embarrassing about sex education? Curriculums. If we take England, for example, because that's where I grew up, I grew up um, sort of a bit above London. Um, the the they made it compulsory in an, a piece of legislation in the late 2010s, and it's taken so long. And also, there was a pandemic in the way, but it's taken them so long to actually mm-hmm. uh, bring that new curriculum into schools. Prior to that, the last time it had been updated. A statutory guidance was in 2000. So between the year 2000 and I think 2017, the government hadn't updated the curriculum. Think about the internet and everything that happened in between those years. Um, our teachers were not remotely prepared or made to feel confident or resourced to be aware of. They had no idea I had a RuneScape boyfriend, you know, when I was 11 or oh, whatever I would have been. Yeah. They had. Or that you mightn't have known that that could have been a right. A man. They had no idea that uh, what what it means if someone asks you ASL on MSN Messenger. It was one of the first places that I would have started sort of talking talking to boys. So that only that only that's only gotten worse. Uh, I grew up in that age of instant messenger where you couldn't really send people pictures because it was also texting pictures to people would be way more expensive SMS and we all had credit on our phones. We wouldn't do that. Um, if, if you think how woefully underprepared they were then, imagine how underprepared teachers feel now 
with the the vast social media eco- ecosystem that is out there, but also the ease of social media messaging. And this goes as um, for both the positives of that and the negatives. So there's a great misunderstanding over the sense of community and the good sides of the internet that young people should feel really confident in being able to harness while being digitally literate, while maintaining privacy, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things too. Um, but they're also not prepared to support young people when harms are occurring. So I can remember um, one of the one of the issues in this space is that sometimes uh, the lessons are simply coming too late because we're assuming yeah. that, oh, your young person won't be doing this at this age. And it's like, well, the, actually, the minute you hand someone a smartphone... And most of us knew all the shit. Like, God, like when we got sex education, I was 14 and I had an idea of what sex was. Now, the difference, and I'm really thankful. So I grew up, pornography was illegal in Ireland when I grew up. Like Playboy, you couldn't even Mm. buy it. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't see images of adults having sex until I was about 16. You know what I mean? And I don't know what it's like now for... There's seven and eight year olds who have to see hardcore porn just by being on the internet. And that's kind of a normal experience for very, very young yeah, children. Yeah, I was, my first experience was like that. I can remember I was having a sleepover at someone's house and one of the girls in the group essentially sort of wanted to scandalize us and said, oh, you've got to look mm-hmm. at this. Does a bit of Googling and then shows a clip. And I can remember it to this day. And I, at that point, knew very little. I knew sex was sex, but I didn't know anything about it. Um, I, knew, I knew it was how babies were made and it's what grown-ups did for fun and, and here endeth. You know, I knew nothing else about it. And then suddenly I'm seeing a clip of one Japanese woman pouring like a jar of eels into another Japanese woman's anus. How did that make you feel at that age? I was horrified. Um, I was horrified. I... I I knew enough to think, I don't think that's what people regularly do in the bedroom. But I can, I really vividly remember thinking that um, the recipient in the scenario, as it were, looked very heavily sedated. I remember thinking something didn't look mm-hmm. right. I can remember thinking, oh my goodness, is this what some people like? Um, and I guess ideas and worries and anxieties were allowed to proliferate because no one had stepped in first to say to me. And then you can't go to your parents no. and say, I saw this video of a woman getting eels shoved up no. her ass. <laughs> you, you can't like, no, like you're just, you're not talking to a parent. You're not talking to an older brother or sister or a teacher. That's what I hate about that too, is the size of the secret that kids have to keep because they just saw something. Yeah. And Really, I thank goodness I was at the time literate enough to think, mm, I don't think people normally do this and this is horrible. You know, luck, yeah, I wasn't there thinking, ooh, this looks fun. I'm going to give it a go. Um, I, I, what was harmful to me was the anxieties around sex that would begin to proliferate from little experiences like mm-hmm. that where sex felt like something violent. It felt like it was something that would sort of happen to me rather than me being an agent of my sort of own sexual health and well-being. And these ideas weren't, ch- weren't challenged. And then that is an example of how I certainly would not have had a lesson saying, you may see some things online. 
this is if, if you see something that you don't think you should see um and it distresses you talk to an adult about it you know stuff like that no one had stepped in what conversations are happening now like how how does a teacher speak to a classroom of eight-year-olds and they know that those eight-year-olds might have seen penetrative sex it's extremely difficult um and i want everyone who's listening imagine and you imagine you know you are you either are a parent or you you may be a parent one day or you may have a niece or nephew or whatever um we're not necessarily built to talk about all of these things in a confident way, in a way that we're not going to get embarrassed. Um, and teachers especially are so overstretched with all the other things that they have on their plates. Um, this is why I always bring up resourcing. Because if we take, for example, England, I've already told you about how they made they made it compulsory and then um, said, oh, yeah, right, we now have to train ourselves to deliver it and we all have to start teaching it. I think it was by like September 2020 or something. And um, the all the charities in England are saying, okay, we need £60 million to train all the teachers who need training to do this. And the government went, okay, here's £6 million. So already we're talking okay. about a lot less than what the sort of stakeholders in this space thought yeah. teachers across England needed. Then um, I had been communicating with the Department of Education's press office over another story and they said to me in their comment, in reply, they were like, oh, well, we have spent three million pounds on blah, 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 about um, training teachers to deliver the new curriculum. And I said, no, 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 it was six million. And then I got no further mm -hmm. reply from the press person. I thought, that's weird. The number was six million. Where's three come from? So I did a freedom of information request. And that's how I discovered that they had spent under three million had cheekily upped it to something like 3.2 million all because there was a really awful review of English schools that found this um, widespread culture of rape and assault assaults. They quickly added some more kind of emergency funding in. They then took the rest of it and they uh, diverted it to other departmental priorities. That was the phrasing that they used mm -hmm. in their, in the freedom of information requests response that I got. So teachers, do not feel as confident or as empowered as they could to talk about this kind of thing that you you and I can very easily sort of say, yeah, it's not the easiest thing in the world to, to talk about this. Yeah. We're two adults. And what I'm thinking of now as well is the teacher in an underfunded system. Like how if, if a teacher is in a class full of kids and the kids bring things up, that teacher can't have open dialogue because where are the bound? It's very difficult for adults to talk to kids about sex, especially when they're not your own kids. And if a, a class full of kids are saying, I saw this online, how does that adult teacher talk to that kid without the adult then wondering, am I stepping into abuse territory by even speaking? Oh, no, it wouldn't this? be that. Teachers have a very powerful safeguarding role. And comprehensive sexuality education has been proven in research to prevent abuse. So it is the most mm -hmm. powerful and protective thing you can do to make sure a child's really ed well educated about this. And obviously it will be delivered in an age appropriate manner, depending on what, you know, what age the, the kids reached. The, I wish everyone could do the kind of training that I did about relationships and sex ed, because you learn that in early years, 
apart from the things that you learn about um, when you get taught about sort of puberty and this is how your body's going to change one day and it's going to do this because that's how you sort of become fertile and may have a baby, that kind of stuff. Apart from that, so much of the curriculum for uh, children who are really quite young in primary school, it's all about respecting others. It's all about building your self-esteem. It's all about building this communicative culture between um, sort of this triangle between like the children and the schools and their parents. Um, then you can introduce healthcare professionals into that, um, especially when they get old enough to start doing things like going to the, the GUM clinic, for example. Um, when you build a culture like that, where it doesn't feel like you're saying the worst, most taboo, horrible, embarrassing thing in the world to say to mum, okay. mum, this has happened, or Mr. So-and-so, this has happened, or mm-hmm. um, really what we deserve. And this isn't only young people at school. This is what you and I deserve throughout our lives mm-hmm. at every stage we are at, every life stage we deserve access to this like really well-nourished, almost like a delicious diet and plate of information when it comes to sexual health. So when you're at school, uh, yeah, it's very, obviously your teachers have a role there, your parents have a role there and should be talking to you with quite a decent level of regularity about sex. This idea that have you had the talk? It's like, what talk? We should be yeah. talking. This should be going on uh, exactly. throughout our uh, sort of, uh, early lives. The talk is this one thing that it's it's when I hear the talk, I don't hear a conversation. I hear a bunch of words that a parent feels they have to awkwardly say and then never talk about it yeah. again. Get it out of the fucking way because this is so awkward. when so when you're young, yeah, you're in an educational setting where you ho- hopefully have access to parents, um, teachers who are teaching you good stuff, and then the healthcare professionals, and then your parents. Then you're then you're an adult. You're no longer in educational settings. Oh no, you kind of lose lose that all-knowing teacher who may be able to pass you through to a safeguarding route or teach you something that you didn't know about. Oh, can I really get pregnant doing X, Y, Z, stuff like that? Um, that's when Dr. Google suddenly becomes sort of a lot more powerful in our lives. Okay. That's when um, we, we do not realize how much sex information we get necessarily from when we consume news media when we watch a documentary or when we read stuff or where we see stuff online. And then it's way more up to us to kind of take responsibility for the information we are confronting, figuring out what's good information, what's mis and disinformation, which in the sex space is, is massive. Like any other health space, there are people trying to sell you things they shouldn't be. Um, mm-hmm. This is a space about interpersonal relations. There are people who may want to get something out of you or have power over you in a way they absolutely do not deserve to. And that is criminal for them to do. Like right now, Sophia, right, as an adult man, I can go to YouTube and look for videos of how do I improve my mental health as a male, right? It's great, but someone, eventually someone's going to tell me to not wank. <laughs> that, that, that's oh, like, oh my God. So, like yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fortunate enough to be to be literate in mental health. So like I, I know what good advice is and what good advice isn't. And I, I trained for a while as a psychotherapist. But if I didn't have these tools, if I was maybe 20 and I'm like, OK, I've got depression. So I go to YouTube and it's just some fella with a sword on his wall 
and he's telling me some good stuff about self-esteem. And then he goes, and you got to make sure you hold it in. Don't masturbate because you got to. What is it called? No fap. Yeah, no fap. Yeah. This no fap culture. Th- th- this is adult men telling it to other adult men that you must not masturbate because I don't even know why, because I, I turned the fucking videos off. I-, I think you keep the virility in or something or you keep. I don't know. what. Why did they tell men? What's no fap? It is baseless. It is this movement where and you'll find a number of people like you just said um, find these communities because a it's nice to be part of an online community when you find one and they seem to say mm-hmm. things you agree with you, you it's nice to find like-minded people and then there'll be something that is shared that is sort of pseudo-scientific but it's convincing enough if you already have this kind of self-confirming confirmation bias you you want to believe it mm-hmm. um this is really popular in the space you'll find a lot of people in those communities believe in porn addiction which is not yet classified yeah. in the ICD. Um, there is a sort of um, uh, sexuality, sort of sex compulsive behavioral disorder or something like that. That is, which mm-hmm. yeah, maybe your symptoms are connected to that. But if you haven't seen a medical professional, don't be thinking these things because you haven't consulted okay. anybody. And research has come out to say that you are far more likely to believe yourself addicted to pornography if you morally disapprove of it. So our own biases and moralistic backgrounds really do impact our attitudes to things like this. And you may think, oh, I'm having this problem because I'm watching too much porn. Um, And actually what is going on may be far more nuanced than that. Could be a physiological issue there. You could be really wrongly vilifying porn when it's not (laughs) not what the issue at hand is. It's actually the fact that um, you lost your job three months ago and no one's ever spoken Mm -hmm. to you about how your mental health and well-being is really rigorously tied to your sexual health and well-being and how if you're having a stressful day or a down day to, to sort of expect yourself to perform sexually in, in in a way you deem optimum may not happen and that's nothing to mm-hmm. worry about here's how we can get through it here's how we can communicate with our partners in a in a nice way about it so that no one no one has to you know stress out too much and so there's one one chapter in your book called the virility mm. myth and is that what you're speaking about right yes, here? Yes, certainly. So um, there, especially when it comes to talking about sexual dysfunction, which uh, there are really high, the proportion of people, this was a study that was done in, in the UK, but the, the proportion of men and women who have experienced a sexual dif- dysfunction that's lasted three months or more in the past year, they're really, really high numbers. Mm-hmm. It's 40 something percent for men and 50 something percent for women. So really high numbers and virility is that that's not fertility virility is, no. is a man's ability to to get an erection the idea that your masculinity or your sense of self is tied to how you perform sexually so if you do not perform in the way that you you think society um wants you to or the way that you've been socialized to believe is what you should be doing the effect that that can have on your sense of identity, your self-esteem, mm-hmm. your confidence, your your happiness. And uh, you take any look online in NoFap communities or other communities targeting mm-hmm. men's mental health and, and sexual health, and you can find so much misinformation. Um, semen retention, which is an idea connected to NoFap, that's equally um, rooted in a lot of pseudoscience. There was a study that came out last year that I read the preprint of, and it in all the areas of of men's health online, it's one of the areas with the least 
the, the smallest amount of physicians in it, sort of mm-hmm. physicians posting content. And it's like, well, yeah, surprise, surprise. Um, it, this isn't based on science or, or medicine. So no wonder there aren't really any doctors posting about it. And if, if you're digitally literate, you can you know to sort of read that immediately as a, ah, hmm, maybe this isn't a thing. Because it's shame. It's sexual shame. And a number of these communities that I was in, you could pick up on sort of jargon or vocabulary uh, associated with quite dark spaces on the internet. For example, sort of incel community, manosphere. You can also find lots of people who have subscribed to one I found in my general journey. Um, uh, A lot of people were also subscribed to uh, video game subreddits, which, you know, I am a keen video game player. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, no shade, video game community. But then also loads of um, subreddits that are quite associated with suicidal ideation or associated Mm -hmm. with um, Forever Alone, which is an online community of people who believe they're going to be forever alone. And uh, you look at a lot of the posts and they aren't, they aren't always telling each other to don't worry, you're going to get through that today. Think of all the things you've got to look forward mm-hmm. to. Look, this is something you can do in your life to feel better. Instead, it will all be like, yeah, you deserve to die. I deserve to die. Everything's bad. Um, and it's it's such yeah. a shame that um, studies have also found that uh, a lot of men in heterosexual relationships, they they feel so bad about some of these really common <laughs> and normal sexual dysfunctions that people go through throughout their lives that they won't even talk to their partner about it. They won't go see a GP about it. And obviously if society is set up to make men feel mm-hmm. that embarrassed about that kind of stuff, of course they are going to end up finding solutions in spaces where the solutions may not be evidence-based. They may not be coming from doctors and they may not be saying the best thing that could actually lead lead you to treatment or lead you to the positive that you're seeking. Because it's it's an interesting one because they also won't go and speak to other men because when something like that is brought up in a group of men, it's immediately something that becomes very funny. There's no, like, if a man isn't going to go to another man and say, I'm having difficulty getting an erection. Like, here's one thing I've noticed with men in their 30s. Men in their 30s only feel comfortable speaking about something like Viagra, mm. right, around other men, never in the context of I'm having difficulty getting an erection, only in the context of I might get a bag later, I might get a bag of Coke, and I'm thinking of getting Viagra. So that context of masculinity is that's the only way they feel safe is to go, oh, no, it's not like, like it's not that I can't get a boner. It's I'm going to do a lot of Coke as well. So that's why. So you understand, don't yeah. you? It has to be hidden behind that a little bit like if someone in Ireland in particular if they don't want to drink alcohol nobody no man in particular says to their friend I'm not drinking tonight instead they make up an excuse oh I'm on antibiotics I can't drink it's the same with conversations about erections it's I'm, I'm getting a bag I'm getting a bag of coke so that's why I have Viagra or why I'm even thinking about Viagra and we'd never dream of talking about depression or anxiety in the way we are willing to kind of reduce sexual dysfunction to quite a comical level. Um, yeah. And I, I appreciate there are times when a little bit of a, an injection of humor can actually help us talk about stuff. But in this space... As long as it's not punching down. Like, I, I what I say is it's like, like signing someone's... Like, when I speak about mental health, 
I always try and bring humor into it. But what I try and compare it to is when someone breaks their leg and they get a cast, we sign that cast. That's quite a healthy ritual. Someone has injured themselves and we're humorously signing that cast. And I'd like to see people speak about mental health in a way that we're signing that cast. You're using humor because having mental health issues is just simply part of the human condition, like getting plaque on your teeth or an abscess in your mouth or breaking your toe. So how do we, it, we're not in a situation to bring humor into conversations about sex when immediately it makes us all giddy and giggly. No, but we are in a position uh, for better representation. So for example, a hugely motivating factor behind doing the book that I did in Debunking Sex Myths is not only because I identify myself as a victim of sex myths and can chart, can chart the sort of sorry state of affairs in my own life, I have lived with a psychosexual disorder. I have lived with something which you can define as a sexual dysfunction. But the way that I have been socialized and the gender norms I've been socialized around, the challenge for me wasn't in talking about it because um, uh, I don't feel like th there's no cost to who I am as a person in telling, in telling someone, oh, I wasn't able to have sex at all for a really long time. Um, the, the challenge for me is far more rooted in a woman talking about her sex life online full stop and the kind of reaction that that may get or the or the kind of um the the negative moralistic so, sort of stuff that you can get that was the barrier to me which because of the work i do i i beat it down as a barrier but um the way the sort of courage that i had to build in order to be able to speak about vaginismus which is the condition that i had a sexual pain disorder immensely under researched um for, for men to sort of come out, celebrities and role models to start coming out more and saying, yeah, I've had this. It's not a big deal. I went to the doctor about it. Um, you know, it's eminently treatable, right? There's no reason to, reason to feel down about it. Um, and lo lots of us are locked in these sort of little shame cages that we build for ourselves. I was. I didn't tell anyone what I was going through when I was going through it. Um, and I had to deal with all these... Um, gendered health issues in that my own GP I was seeing was not trained um, in psychosexual disorders and did not know the condition that I had. So was not able to give me the treatment that I needed at the time. Um, whereas someone coming in with erectile dysfunction that's had a lot more research behind it, you know, I would imagine doctors sort of being far better armed to treat that uh, at that primary care wow. level. Um, but I... I, me and lots of other women who've had vaginismus, we all wish that someone could have spoken to us about uh, not only the idea that sex going wrong is you get pregnant. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of that messaging really as a young person or mm -hmm. sex going wrong means you get chlamydia. Um, no one mm -hmm. kind of said, oh, what about uh, you can't get aroused? You can't mm -hmm. have an orgasm. You can't maintain an erection. None of that was ever addressed. The, the real function of sex, because we weren't allowed to sort of discuss it in a sort of robust, evidence-based, me mechanical way, or look at it as, as a skill that's essentially learned. We never really talk about sex in that way, or how from every experience we learn something. Our pleasure. Like, at, people have sex for pleasure. Like, I didn't... Uh, sex was a dangerous thing that you have to be careful of, and if you do it wrong, bad things happen. That's about it. No one spoke about sex is a wonderful, fun thing that people do and you can get good at it. And that, 
oh yeah, and sometimes something might happen which does, doesn't quite go to plan, here's how to handle it. Sort of the idea that it's not positive first and then all about your own sort of agency and autonomy as a person. And this is what this is the sex, this is what sexual health and well-being can look like for you. And then going into, okay, and these are some of the harms. These are some of the things that can happen that ideally we don't want to happen. Um, it's never fronted in that way. It's always risk first. Um, I would also say I would have loved, so not only would I have loved to have learned more about um, sexual dysfunction as a young person, but I think a lot of the teaching that I got at my all-girls school was about women's bodies. And I was left hopelessly illiterate about men's bodies. And um, all of us should know about everyone's bodies. I think that's a basic because it's not only about, um, we were an all girls school, but we were full of, yeah, heterosexual girls and girls who'd end up uh, coming out as gay later on or bisexual or whatever sexual in, in the LGBTQ plus spectrum. Um, people coming out also with different gender identities to the ones that they had been assigned at birth. Um, we all need to know about our bodies, the bodies of the partners we may have. And also, what if a friend comes to you or a child comes to you that does not share your sexuality or gender identity and says, this has happened to me? Do you want to be someone who goes, oh, yeah, ooh, I don't know about that. I can't talk about it. Or do you want to say, oh, yeah, I think, oh, this is where I think you can get more info. Um, don't worry about it. Actually, this happens to a lot of people because I heard X, Y, Z. And even just saying that can really help someone. The, the, a lot of the taboo that we feel is because we feel like we're the only person in the world going through it. Um, I felt like that. Um, so when I had vaginismus, I was the only person I knew who had it because I wasn't talking about it. Um, ever mm -hmm. since writing about it in the book and discussing it, I am in a scheme for uh, young um, sort of young talent in TV. And mm -hmm. in the course of talking about what I went through, um, it's something like a around four or five out of 30 women have gotten in touch to say, oh, I, I, I have it too. Wow. That's a really high fraction. That's a high, That's a high number. number. Yeah. Um, and now each one of us feels less alone. Each one of us feels more chill mm -hmm. with what's going on. Um, we've been able to sort of do um, share information learn things we didn't know before that may make us better advocate for ourselves in medical scenarios or better, better explain to a partner about what's going on. Um, these are things that can really change people's lives. They can make, um, and they can help someone who, because all of this is going on, is disappearing down a mental health spiral that can have devastating consequences. That's really eye-opening for me because like erectile dysfunction, while there is still shame around it, it's it's kind of a household phrase. Like mm -hmm. who doesn't know what Viagra is? Yeah. Who do, Like Viagra, mainly Viagra is a punchline of a joke. Pele, the footballer who died recently, he was the face of Viagra growing up. But I knew what Viagra was before I, I, I got sex education. They make it down in Cork. I've heard that fish in Cork I've got Viagra in their system no one ever speaks about what you're speaking yeah, about yeah the sort of family of sexual pain disorders that if, if it, yeah that that never if you ever uh, feel my genitalia you may experience but similarly the thing um, Viagra can be a red herring too for people who may be listening and may have tried Viagra and it hasn't worked 
Um, and I know this very well because it's the condition I had was a, a pain disorder in which um, my pelvic floor would spasm repeatedly. And it didn't matter how much I wanted to have sex. Every time mm -hmm. insertion would be attempted, it would feel like someone was stabbing me. And I'm not um, exaggerating there. The only it's, mm -hmm. it's like it was like a blade. Um, that is how painful it is. It cannot be tolerated. You're everything. If you don't mind yes. me asking, is was that just uh, when having sex with someone, or was uh, how about masturbation? Uh, I didn't do that. Um, I didn't know it was something I okay. could do. Didn't know anything about it. Had never been talked to about it. Um, super Catholic. Super Catholic about that. Um, I had never been able to use a tampon because that had been painful too. Uh, but certainly anything pleasurable, I knew nothing about it. I thought the only person who could do that to me is a man. It didn't occur to me that I could do it to myself. Um, but it, it, an anxiety, a loop, it, it, we call it psychosexual because it's this mind-body sort of mm -hmm. connection. And it didn't matter that I wanted to have sex, the, the loop would kick in. And this is something that a lot of people who have erectile dysfunction can experience too. Um, because it didn't work last time, even though you really want to have yeah. sex, you have a fear in your head like, oh, what if I can't get it up again? And then lo and behold, that's what happens. Um, and this, you have to, a lot of people will get therapy to undo that loop. And that's not something connected to blood flow. So if the problem behind your erectile dysfunction, this is what numerous experts in my book told me, and it's all in that chapter. Um, if your problem isn't connected to your blood flow, Viagra, the role of it is to increase blood flow to the area. If blood flow is not the issue, it may not actually work. So imagine, imagine wow. how you'd feel if you, you had no idea your something mental or anxiety was the cause behind it. And we now are far more literate thinking about how uh, many people are affected by anxiety. Um, you think, oh, it's fine. I'm going to take this pill. You take the pill and it still doesn't work. I, it, yeah. Imagine the, the effect that that can have on someone. And does that impact what next step will they take, especially if they have gotten yeah. um, Viagra that's maybe available over the counter to them. They've never actually even had to communicate with a healthcare professional before trying that. Yeah. Um, so the it's it can be a, a, a red herring. It can be something. Um, it's easy to say, oh, there are all these solutions um, for men and no solutions for women. And actually... Um, all of us could certainly benefit from more research um, and awareness on on all sides, all sides that affect us, you know, of all gender backgrounds. But in your experience, have you like when you go to doctors, did you find that medical professionals were a bit clueless? Oh, yeah. The other. So I'm, I'm very deliberate that I don't talk about my um, my my sex life. I talk about something that you know happened at the very very beginning, which is connected to my vaginismus. Um, but I don't. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I don't talk about it. I keep it private. Um, but I am very willing talking mm -hmm. about my medical experiences because I think it's important. Um, and yeah, the first doctor had no idea what it was that I had. Um, told me to was it a male doctor. It was a male doctor, and I was all okay. bolshy and bravado y going in. It was a male GP, and I didn't. I didn't want to be difficult. I didn't want to go, oh, actually, can I have a uh, woman GP instead? I didn't. I thought I'm going to be a big, brave mm -hmm. girl and just see whoever can see me as quickly as possible. Um, and in hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have done that because um, they the, the language that they used in a clinical setting was not appropriate, I would say. I left feeling very... Um, the first question I was asked was, have I been a victim of abuse, of, of sexual abuse, mm -hmm. which did not set me up 
to feel very positive at all about what was going on with me. Um, and the treatment I'd be given sort of repeatedly over months on end, a, a gynecologist later said to me, yeah, you were effectively being told to self-harm every day. Um, and I'll possibly oh, never wow. know, you know, the, the effect that that all had. Thankfully, I admit, you know, I'm able to have painless sex now and I have for a really long time. But I, if that hadn't happened, I, d- I don't know what spiral I could have wound up down. I would, years mm-hmm. later, get my first cervical smear. Um, I'm there thinking, oh, it's fine. My vaginismus has gone in the records. Um, I'm, I'm fine now. I feel like I'm cured, maybe. Uh, it's going to be fine. Uh, and we all get cervical smears, right? It's, um, we all know uh, it's not uh, the most pleasant experience in the world. No one goes in thinking it's going to be a delight, you know, like when people have to get prostate exams. You do it because yeah. there's a really powerful health reason behind it, but no one's going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that was thrilling having a stranger there. But you do it. I go in, I'm expecting the medical information to be there for them, and it wasn't. And then I slightly spasmed during it, and the nurse practitioner hit me really hard on my leg and said, don't do that. Fucking hell. Yeah. And how does that, how does that leave me? Anyone listening to this, um, you cannot be swayed from getting your cervical smear. It's really, really important. And that experience will not sway me going back. But my goodness, am I going to advocate for myself far better? And you expected them to know already your history. I'm, I was there like an idiot thinking this, surely before this, they've got my page up. I still felt too embarrassed to say as I went in, oh, by the way, I used to have vaginismus. I just sort of thought I was mm-hmm. very, I was kind of very kind of um, still quite embarrassed isn't quite the word, but even um, even when I think about it, yeah, I can feel I can feel the sort of body responses of anxiety coming back to me um, yeah. because you're sort of reflecting on a traumatic period in your life. I'd rather not say it if I don't have to. And then I'm thinking, oh, great, it's going to be in my medical records. Hopefully I don't need to say it. And instead, I probably did. Um, but the thing is, irrelevant of, what, irrelevant of what I had or didn't have, uh, there's no justification for being um, hit in a medical setting. Um, Absolutely. So that, that, that gives some examples of, of the treatment that I have had. But on the other hand, there are so many wonderful doctors out there um, Dr. Leila Frodsham is an example of someone that we have um, in London who does really brilliant work around raising awareness of psychosexual medicine. Um, it's just they need they need to be amplified and better resourced themselves. And loads of GPs feel woefully undertrained when it comes to um, psychosexual health. So again, just like we've been speaking like in this podcast about teachers not feeling like they have the best resources, GPs uh, also don't feel like they have the best um, resourcing resources when it comes to dealing with patients like me. Another chapter you have in your book is the sexlessness Ooh, myth. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm like, this is something I'm seeing a lot in the media. I'm seeing a lot of headlines, which are like men aren't having as much sex as they used to have. The sexless chapter is more the, the myth that if we don't have or want sex or regular sex, there must be something wrong with us. Or there must be something weird about okay. it. Um, and you are right. Like you just said, all these, all this hand wringing about people having less sex. Obviously, if you can establish a really rigorous causation that might be connected to a harm, that may be something to, to be worried about. Um, but I think lots of people in my generation, like we can all fully understand 
that if we're if we are feeling less socio-economically secure and powerful than previous generations yeah are living with your fucking parents in your 30s ergo i'm not surprised people are having less sex um the what's crucial here is that um we all know that we're all very educated and literate about that and we're not here thinking again it's like the same refrain i'm the only one in the world everyone else is having sex and i am the only person who's not having sex oh no something must be very wrong with me and that's when ideas like that get introduced mm-hmm. but um the chapter addresses people who've made the decision to be sexless for a period of time maybe their whole life uh maybe um a few months because they've gone through a bad breakup or something traumatic has happened to them and they feel they just need a bit of a break um and they and then they'll be a branded as sort of prudes or quite negative words by their friends when yeah. that's absolutely not what that person needs in this moment in time is that they're establishing a new relationship with their body and how they wish their body to sort of interact with other bodies um but the other thing is uh the asexual community and, and the spectrum of asexuality that we're now getting a lot better at talking about i in researching for this book that's how i learned i am allosexual i never thought i was anything other than heterosexual and then it turns out i'm also allosexual i experience sexual desire and attraction not everybody does some people are somewhere on the asexuality spectrum they do not experience desire or attraction or a wish for romance with others in the way that i do this means that if okay. i deliver sex education um you've got to bear in mind there may be people in your classroom for example Wow. who identifies asexual okay, yeah. the last thing they need is to be shamed for not having sex secondly yeah. when we talk about first time sex um it it is a good thing that the average age for sort of sexual initiation is getting later and later because delayed sexual initiation like normally means someone's had good sex education and that they are beginning their sex lives um when they are ready that's what we want we want people to mm-hmm. do it when they feel uh knowledgeable enough to to use contraception yeah. and they know that it's really important that they consent and that their partner consents and all of that leads to slightly older um ages of first time sex than younger which is because i remember being 12 13 and the pressure to like finger girls and stuff when you're when you're shifting we call it, but when you're kissing i didn't want to do that like I, because I, I, my voice hadn't broken yet. I wasn't, I hadn't grown pubes yet. I was effectively a child, but I felt this pressure that I had to do these things with girls. And if I didn't do it, I was called a frigid. That was the word that was used. Which is awful. Why do I want to put my finger up there? That's where piss comes from. <laughs> I was too yeah. young. Then give it a couple of years and I'm like, oh, now I get it. But like that, that's. I don't like that and I don't like that. Now, I couldn't say that at the time. Holy fuck. No way. Yeah. And it's really important that we address how. So the way that gender norms are, that was one of the pressures applied to you and the virility, the fact yeah. that you were expected to sort of perform a sexual act, um, not only perform it, but probably like do it well. You know, do you get more points and status in well, your group if you say, oh, yeah, I did this and then she did this and blah, blah, blah. What the lad had to do was, it, I call it smell my finger culture. Oh my God. The, the, lad, the lad was expected to then come back from behind the wall or wherever it was with the girl and then make out all the other lads were like, let me smell this your This is finger. virility. This is the performance of virility. That's um, the performance. And that meant, that was a very masculine thing. It meant, I'm a man and that gave you value and status. 
And I guarantee you, most of the lads were like, I don't want to smell a yeah, cinder. Yeah. What is that about? And also, that's not, um, where, where is your pleasure in that conversation? Um, where, is, where is your partner's pleasure in that conversation? And how much of what we do is because we do it because we feel expected to do it by others outside of the bedroom. We're expected to do it by our partner within the bedroom. Are we being asked to do something or coerced into doing something we really don't want to do, but we don't know how to say no, or we don't know how to um, politely challenge it, if, if that's how you want to be, or robustly kind of defend yourself when needed. Um, that, this, these, are, these are, can be quite difficult conversations to have. Um, and mm -hmm. if you've not been sort of set up with, here's how, oh, this has happened and you're struggling to think of a way to, to word it or say it, hey, this is how you're going to do it. And now um, at the beginning of my book, I say some of the things you might learn about in this may make you rethink your own sexual biography. I think I now look at things in my like teenage years and like, early dating experiences, especially in my early 20s, things at the time that happened and you kind of thought, hmm, that was weird. And then you, you move on and you kind of forget about it. And then now I look back because I have way more literacy about these things and the research that I've done. And I think, oh my goodness, that was coercion. That was normalized coercion. So normalized, I didn't even bat an eyelid or spot it. But that's what happened to me. Um, and in rethinking and rewriting our own sexual biographies, it might be it, some of it is possibly going to be a bit disturbing. We might be um, mm -hmm. rethinking negative things as well as positive things. But the point is, when we are better informed about it all, um, we are not going to pass that harm on someone else. We are not going to treat a partner in the way where we feel like we may have been very poorly treated. And if we ever find ourselves as a sort of sex education bystander or someone in a sex education role, which we are all in, every group chat with your mates where someone raises something to do with sex or when a young person in your care may come to you one day asking a question, um, what kind of person do you want to be in that instance? Do you want to be someone who... Um, gives really well-informed um, power and gender literate information to them? Or do you want to be someone who passes down the same sex myths we should have all unlearned long ago? I know I want to be someone, I, I know that I really feel like in my, in my little bloodline or whatever, I'm going to be the last generation that was screwed over. It's not going to happen mm -hmm. to, to the people who come after me. And when you make a video about sex, Sophia, in your mind when you make this are you thinking this is for an adult or I want someone who could be younger to possibly see this and benefit from it like what are you thinking when you post I for me it's not about age for me it's about is this evidence based and rigorously researched that's what okay. I'm thinking about thank you very much to Sophia Smith Gaylor for that wonderful conversation Check out her book, Losing It, Sex Education for the 21st Century, which is out on paperback on the 2nd of February. That's not all from me this week, because you're getting a bonus episode this Friday, I reckon, which will be a monologue essay hot take. In the meantime, rub a dog, tickle the belly of a cat, and say a decade of the rosary for an earthworm. Go fuck yourselves.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 